Take your digital advertising to a higher level with metrics that matter. Ad Taxi can boost your campaign performance, increase efficiency, and optimize your results. To learn more about our customized solutions, visit adtaxi.com. The following contains language that, while it may be completely appropriate for candid discussions of bank heists, car chases, penal codes, betrayal, firearms, lying, corruption in the Oval Office, love, and larceny, it may not be suitable for more delicate audiences. You're listening to Crime Beat, a behind-the-scenes podcast of fascinating true crime stories. This is Season 1, Stealing Nixon's Millions. Two journeys came to an end this week. An old burglar got to see the movie about his life, and my dream came true. Forgive me if I'm a little sad, a little tired, a little hungover. I rented a royal blue velvet tuxedo, and I put that thing to use. I saw Finding Steve McQueen with four different audiences. I had dinner with the cast of the film. I hugged so many people, shook so many hands, my face was sore from smiling. We've got a picture from the premiere of Harry Barber, one of the burglars who pulled off the biggest bank heist in U.S. history, and his smile is the picture of relief and happiness. For a week, Harry and I felt the sprinkles of fairy dust. I returned the blue velvet to Friar Tucks on Sunday afternoon. My name is Keith Sharon. I'm a reporter for the Southern California News Group, based in Orange County. In 2003, I wrote a 10-part series for the Orange County Register about the biggest bank heist in the history of the United States when seven guys from Youngstown tried to steal $30 million from President Nixon. Then I wrote a screenplay based on the same material. I have been obsessed with this burglary for almost 20 years. This is Episode 8 of Stealing Nixon's Millions, the premiere. There's one thing that happened this week that not only surprised me, it made me feel better about the movie-making process. On Monday night, I was invited to a screening at the Arc-like Theater in Hollywood. Sitting in the seat next to me was Harry Barber. In the other episodes of this podcast, you heard me describe a crusty old guy who didn't like the Hollywood influence on the story of his life. I talked to him a couple of weeks ago, and he told me he would not be attending any movie events. But this week... There he was. He kept leaning over to me during the movie. He remembered stealing the burglar alarm off the wall. He remembered living on the top floor of the old theater. The old burglar looked happy. He shook hands and smiled and seemed like he was having the time of his life. Thanks to my buddy Jeff Gritchen, who's doing the editing, sound, photography, and video on this podcast. He got an interview with Harry Barber. What was it like the first time you saw your representation on screen with your name? It gave me chills. It, uh, it's something I never believed it would happen in a lifetime. You know, this is something we did. Uh, we thought we were going to get away with it, but here I am. <laughs> would you do anything in life different, or would you regret anything? No, no, I wouldn't. Uh, I've had a good life. Harry told me several times, just because you do a bad thing in life... That doesn't make you a bad guy. Harry got to meet Travis Fimmel, who played him in the movie. I introduced Harry to Rachel Taylor, who played his girlfriend. For one week, after a life of hiding and keeping his story secret, 
Harry Barber was a star. This week, he was cheered everywhere he went. He told me he got a phone call from his uncle, Emil Dinzio, who said he loved the movie. Jeff asked Harry the money question. So what I really want to know is, where's the money now? I have no idea. If I told you, I'm lying to you. I haven't seen a penny. $12,000 is what... This is pretty close to what they showed here. It's pretty close. Harry's week in the limelight ended in Santa Ana when he came to the Frida Cinema for the Orange County premiere of Finding Steve McQueen. I've got to tell you about the Frida. Logan Crow runs the place, and he's a movie guy in his soul. The Frida is a nonprofit that specializes in independent film, and to go there is to have an old-fashioned good time at the movies. Logan rolled out the red carpet for Finding Steve McQueen. He sold 300 tickets, a sellout crowd. The Orange County Register has hosted several events at the beautiful old theater, and the only previous one to pack the house was a Register book club night with author Michael Conley. He's now the host of a true crime podcast, Murder Book. It was great that night, but I'll take this one. What you're about to hear is what it sounded like before and after the premiere. Like I said, people walked into the theater on a red carpet. The Frida got a special alcohol license just for that night, so there was a party atmosphere in the lobby. Just before 8 p.m., everyone took their seats. The first voice you'll hear will be my son. If you ever do something noteworthy, get your kids involved. I couldn't be more proud. His name is Dylan Sharon. He's 23 years old, an aspiring actor. When Dylan finished introducing me, I walked to the front of the theater proudly in my rented blue velvet tux. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Frida Theater. No, I'm just kidding. So my name's Dylan. Um, I'm the writer's son, which is a good, it's a good task to be. Um, if I don't know you, hello. If I know you, hope you're drinking a beer for me. Um, I just want to like talk about the movie real quick. I've seen it. This will be my third time this week. Um, my dad's been working on this film for 16 years. Um, it's a long process of, you know, writing it in the newspaper, getting a podcast done, getting a film done, which is an incredible experience. So if everyone could just give a hand for my dad real quick. Thank you. We just got to boost his ego a little bit. You know, blue velvet suit wearing everyone. I don't know. So just to say a little things about the movie, because I've seen it. All right, three times. There is an age requirement. I'm 23 years old, okay? There's some jokes in it, in all of it, that's probably 50 plus. So all of you oldies in the room, which is all of you, you'll enjoy it. So, so I'm watching it. I'm, you know, there's this common like theme, this Steve McQueen guy, right? I'm watching it, and I'm like, who the fuck is Steve McQueen? And I didn't, I, it took me to like the second time that I saw it that I was like, oh, okay, I get it. But all jokes aside, I just wanted to introduce my dad, and, you know, I'm really stoked for him, really proud. Thank you all for coming out. And so without further ado, here's my dad, Keith Sharon.
What a good-looking kid. I cannot see anything. I can't even... Wow. <laughs> you, just, you just wait. You just wait. Okay. Um, before this week, the last time I was in a Friar Tux was 1979. George, uh, I think you were with me. I think we went with the light blue. 40 years ago. I've darkened over the years. So on Tuesday of this week, I walked into uh, the Friar Tux and to, pick, to pick up this suit. And uh, there was this young hipster guy working behind the counter who had a thin beard and a fedora. And he looked at me when I came out of the dressing room and he said, Bold. <laughs> So, a hipster called me bold. I've got, I've got that going for me. That's a good thing, right? For those of you who just bought a ticket and have no idea who I am, and you're thinking to yourself, who is this idiot in this incredibly beautiful suit? <laughs> My name is Keith Sharon, and I'm a journalist at the Southern California News Group based in Orange County. Um, I'm also the host of the Crime Beat podcast, which has, as of tonight, around 50,000 downloads in 60-plus countries around the world. Thank you. I started writing this screenplay for this movie 16 years ago. My twins were seven years old at the time. Uh, it was the Bush administration. The Lakers were relevant <laughs> then. My friend and former registered colleague, columnist Frank Mickadite, stopped me in the... He's here. He's here. Say hello to Frank. Stopped me in the newsroom one morning and said, um, you want your next movie? There's this bank heist that he'd heard about on a television show the night before. And sorry it took so long. <laughs> I have dreamed about this night for a long time. One of my favorite movies of all time is It's a Wonderful Life. It always makes me cry. At the very end, Clarence, the angel, leaves a note for George Bailey, and it says, Remember, no man is a failure who has friends. Thank you for being here with me tonight. I saw the movie, as Dylan pointed out, twice this week in Hollywood, and I can honestly say you guys are a better-looking crowd. <laughs> I have some very special introductions to make. I can't see anyone right now, um, but I'm going to call you out, and so please cheer for yourselves when, uh, when I get to you. Um, first, uh, we're going to make two very important uh, introductions at the end of the movie. I'm going to save 
two things for the big ending. Um, there's going to be a Q&A afterward. So if you enjoy the film and want to stay and hear me uh, talk about it, uh, then hang out. And if you don't, exit bef before the uh, lights come up. <laughs> I have so many people to thank. Um, Frank Pine and Todd Harmonson are here, the power people at the Orange County Register, Southern California News Group, so thank you. Uh, without them, we don't have any of this. Um, there are so many people who worked behind the scenes on the movie and the podcast. Uh, Michelle Vilma, I don't know if she's here. Caroline Wong, Jeff Gritchen, who is hustling, doing sound and photos and video and and everything else tonight. Sarah Bacha, who uh, does the social media for the Orange County Register and Southern California News Group, so thank you. My mom and stepfather are here, Nancy and Ron. So say hello. I think about 20 members of my immediate family. Hi, Vicki, Steve, and Sean. They're here. My son... Trey is at home with a babysitter. Um, thank you to everyone who's reached out with help and support for Trey this year. He's, he's doing well. So thanks a lot. My twins are here, Allie and Dylan, obviously. <laughs> I can only imagine the massive amount of embarrassment they are feeling right now as their dad stands up in front of real, actual people wearing a suit that looks like a pimp's bedspread. So, bold, exactly. I, I have many friends from many years uh, here tonight. I have friends from my elementary school, Madison Elementary in Lakewood, are here. So... Say hello. Uh, from junior high, Carmenita Junior High, I know there's at least a couple, right? From Cerritos High School, people are here. Members of the Steve Club from Cerritos College are here. And even some friends from Cal State Fullerton. <laughs> I have a lot of friends here from the Orange County Register. Thanks, guys. My friend Mike, who's bought the very last ticket, is in the very last seat. He drove from Napa to be here. And my good friend Keith Harrison flew in from Utah for this event. But there is one more person I need to thank more than any other. On April 25th, 1986, I met a girl who has never been able to get rid of me. How many times has she watched the kids while I clacked away at a keyboard in the other room? How many times have I yelled, hey Nance, how's this dialogue sound? How many bad screenplays has she read for me? She has been on every roller coaster ride for 30-whatever years <laughs> together. 
You guys know how much I love movies. She is my One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. She is my Chinatown. And she is my Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Can you give a hand to Nancy Gill, please? So, ladies and gentlemen, without further rambling, 16 years in the making, I present to you Finding Steve McQueen. There's something that I gotta tell you. You're really not gonna like it. Your real name's Harry. Harry James Barber. And you changed your name because why? The FBI's looking for me because I robbed the bank in California. And? It's the biggest bank heist in U.S. history. Look it up. I'm going to rip off the president of the United States. It doesn't get any bigger or better than that. Seemed like a good idea at the time. How much are we talking here? As much as 30 million. I'm in? Yeah, you're in. What's your name again? Steve McQueen. Finding Steve McQueen is a 91-minute film. It's available on streaming services on television. You can see it right now if you'd like. And now a couple of words about other things we do here at the Southern California News Group. At the Orange County Register, we'll keep City Hall honest, corporations accountable, and report on local sports, events, and issues in your community, accurately and objectively. And that's worth paying for. To subscribe, call 1-877-469-6133. That's 1-877-469-6133. When the film ended, Todd Harmonson took the mic. He's the senior editor for the Southern California News Group. He had a couple of surprises for the crowd. We asked everyone to vote for their favorite heist movies. Keep listening after the Q&A to hear their picks, and we'll announce the winner of our drawing. Hi, everybody. All right. I'm Todd Harmonson. I'm the senior editor of the Orange County Register. Great, I didn't do anything, but um, <laughs> thank you for being here tonight. This has really been amazing, and uh, what a great movie. That was fun, wasn't it? So uh, not only am I welcoming you, but I'm welcoming the podcast audience that's going to be listening to this on an upcoming episode of Crime Beat, um, our true crime podcast that... Season one, we're calling Stealing Nixon's Millions because it's all about the true crime behind the bank heist that you just saw in this movie. Um, so wanted tonight to spend a little bit of time talking to the guy who wrote the original screenplay. And then we've got... Sure. We also have one of the members of the cast who's here tonight. So uh, Louis Lombardi, can you join us?
nice to meet you. Thank you. All right, so uh, you might know Louis from a few different things in his career. Mainly, my favorite is The Sopranos, of course, uh, where Louis was quite a memorable character. Um, and then 24, where many people uh, really love him. Um, so we'll talk to him, and then this guy next to him, of course, is Keith Sharon. Uh, he wrote the original screenplay for this. He wrote a 10-part series for The Register in 2003 that got this all started. Um, he said, let's do a podcast on it. Um, he wrote a screenplay. Um, as Keith wrote for today's um, edition of the Orange County Register, he's kind of got this little media industry of his own about this heist. Um, I don't know if there's going to be any more. There could be. Uh, we're, we're actually in some talks about something else, and then there are a couple more episodes of the podcast, um, which has been a lot of fun to do. Um, so, And then we've got one more introduction. Um, and maybe the most important thing that Keith did was he went out and he found Harry Barber. And Harry is here with us tonight. Harry, can you stand up? <laughs> so I don't know if Harry wants to join us up here or you just get up there. Okay, I'm probably going to walk a question or two over to you. Um, but this might be a good time to give our explicit language warning because uh, we do that for every podcast. We've got Louie over here, and I'm also going to share with you one of my favorite things with Harry. As a part of our podcast, we ended one of our episodes with a line that he uttered when he ran into somebody uh, when he was kind of on the lam. And it has become my wife's favorite line of the podcast so far when he utters the words, Mum's the word, motherfucker. Now, my wife is a public school teacher, so I'm not quite sure what that means. Um, but, hey, it could work. But um, I am going to walk one question over to Harry and see if he'll answer it for us. So, Harry, we heard earlier in the week that you'd talked to your uncle, Emil, who is um, Enzo in this movie. And maybe he wasn't particularly thrilled with you, but then you heard again from him tonight. Can you tell us... How Emil was feeling these days? He loved the movie. That's good. I, I did hear earlier in the week that maybe he was a little jealous, you thought? Did, did you think that? I think he's jealous. He made a, uh, wrote a book. The book's not doing so good. <laughs> and Harry got a movie out of it, so hey, why not? So uh, we might be able to throw another question to him at some point uh, during the night. But we wanted to uh, turn some questions to Keith and to Louie, and then we'll open it up to questions from the audience. Keith, um, this writer long ago said that, you know, beware the Ides of March. Um, and Shakespeare. Yeah, that was, that was this Bill Shakespeare guy. And, you know, in Julius Caesar, he issues this warning. What do you think about that warning, Keith? Uh, completely wrong, because today, the Ides of March, March 15th, is 17 years to the day that my first movie, Showtime, opened in Hollywood, March 15th. So this is a good day for me. 
not, not bad. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So, you know, 16, 17 years from now, watch out, March, <laughs> March 15th. I hope it's not that long. <laughs> so, Louie, um, you've got, I think it's 85 credits on your IMDb, uh, but the two that jump out to a lot of people are obviously um, Sopranos and then 24. What's the difference that you can tell? I've heard that you can spot something from somebody when they're walking up to you that you know what kind of fan they are. Yeah, I could tell the difference between a 24 fan and a soprano fan. And when I'm with my daughter, my daughter's sitting right there in the front row, say hi. And uh, <laughs> so when, like, we're out, we're out places, I could tell a soprano fan because they come over with all the swagger and aggression and cursing at me, and I'm like, yo, really? Hi. And the 24 fans come over, they're more like, hi, I don't really want to bother you. Even if they're, like, big dudes, you know? Like, I don't really want to bother you. And I could tell as they're walking, you could tell somebody's ready to, like, you know, be a soprano dude. And I'm like... You're like, you know, an old man from, like, Kentucky, and you want to be a gangster? That's me! That's me! And they start cursing. I'm like, I want my child, you know? So it's kind of funny. I can tell the difference now after all the years of a 24 fan and a Soprano fan by their walk over. And I bet with my friends. I'm like, watch. I bet you a beer. I bet you this. And I win most of the time. <laughs> so, Keith, you've lived with, loved, probably hated this story uh, for the better part of 16 years. What does it mean to get to this week finally and to have an audience of friends, family um, here to see it with you? It, for me, it's like the it's like the Oscars for me. Um, you know, we we probably won't get to the Oscars uh, with this film, but uh, to see everyone, it's such a thrill. Um, it's a culmination of disbelief. Um, frustration. You've made movies. You know that there were times when I thought this was going to be the greatest thing in the world and then crushed and it wasn't going to happen. And two or three months ago, it was dead. This movie was done. And E1 Entertainment, company based in Canada, came in and, and uh, bought the rights. And so now I'm just so happy that people can get to see it and the audiences seem to like it. Yeah, the reviews love it. A lot of reviewers love it. You know, it's, it's being well accepted, which is great. I actually think it's... And we shot this a while ago, right? Right. years ago? During the Obama administration. Who's that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't follow politics. I'll tell you where any pizza place in the country is in two seconds. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it was actually... Sh shooting this film was actually a while ago, and we didn't know what happened to it. And then, like he said, E1 picked it up, and uh, they kind of did a pretty good job getting it out there. And these days, you know, like he was saying, you know, I've been in movies where $100 million movies with, like, Robin Williams and, and like, Billy Crystal. And you go, wow, this is going to be, like, one of the biggest movies ever. And it bombs more than anything. And then you do a little movie. I've done several little films that have really spawned my career where I started, it blew it out of the water. And thinking you're just doing a day on a movie, it turns out to get more hype than the bigger film. So in anything in life, you never know what to expect. You put your heart in stuff, you get out there, you roll with it, and if it works, it works. If it don't, you do something else, you know? So you both kind of hit on something I wanted to ask. What is that like to know that this movie was so close a couple times, um, the distribution deal was set, you know, premiered in Monaco, and everything looks like, hey, it's going to happen, and then um, it all falls apart for a while. Now you get back to this point. Uh, is it something that you live and die with every moment, 
or do you just kind of put it in the back of your mind and say, if it ever happens, great? Go, go ahead. No, I have a different mentality, like I said, toward the whole business. I do my job. I, I've never really watched The Sopranos or 24. And I was on Entourage, too. And I've never really watched anything I do. To me, it's a job. I get paid, and I move on to the next project. And whatever happens with that, it's in the, it's in the process of whatever happens. If you start basing your whole life on, on one thing that you expect so much and it lets you down, then you become miserable. But if you, you know, are confident in what you do, you keep doing stuff, and eventually something good will come out of life. You know, when, when, If you get a job and you get fired, you quit and never go back to work again? Well, I did. That's why I became an actor. <laughs> no, no, but it's like I, I told you, I don't, I've done me, many films, and the bigger films I do seem to not do as well as the little films. So I take every film like it's a big film. Whatever role it is, I take that as it's a big role. For me, anything that happens now is just gravy. So I, I had written this off a long time ago, and so when I start to see it, we got invited to to Hollywood this week. I got to have dinner with this guy and, and the rest of the cast. I, my son gets to introduce me, you know, to all my friends who I've ever had in the world. All of you are here. Like, everyone I know is here. Uh, are you all his friends for real? <laughs> yeah. And you stood for the whole movie and you're here still now? You guys are good friends. <laughs> my friends in my Bronx would be out robbing your cars now. They'd be in the parking lot. They'd be like, all right, all the friends are in here breaking into cars. <laughs> Right, Louis. Um, it sounded like at some point you had a career choice to make, where you could have played the criminal type, or you could play cops. Um, I know. I heard that you kind of chose one over the other. Why did you make that choice, and then well, why I've criminal now? I've never chose anything. Fortunately, you know. And I, again, it's another. What you see inside of yourself is what people see. You get it? And as, a, as a, an Italian-American, a bigger guy, everyone immediately says gangster, right? I've played two gangsters or three gangsters in 70 films. Sopranos, I was the FBI agent. 24, I was the FBI agent. Entourage, I just played a neighborhood guy. I mean, if you look at my career, and this is one thing I do pride myself on, and it's not about going, I'm going to pick this because of this. It's what comes down the pipe for you in life. Again, you take what you get, even as far as expecting things to be big, Take whatever it is, appreciate it, put your heart into it, because you never know what's going to come out of it. And fortunately, I see myself inside and out as a, a different person. I don't see myself as I'm a gangster, even though I grew up with all of them in the Bronx. Didn't mean as I see myself as your neighbor. I see myself as your cop. I see myself as a, whatever it is. You know, I just feel what you see yourself in inside is what, you, is what people see outside. So I just believe, you know... I, don't, I, I never chose my roles. They've chosen me by what people see in the room of myself. And each role I have done, I consider it to be almost like a child. You know, each role you do as a child, some you love more for different reasons than others. Not that you don't love your children more, but you love each child in a different, unique way, correct? If you have five kids, you're like, oh, this kid's funny, this kid's cool, this kid's smart. You know, you have five kids. That's the way my roles are. Each one is extremely important in its own unique way. And, and fortunately, I have a great career, and I've been doing this for 27 years. And, and I, I've never gotten stereotyped into any gangster or anything. And my career path has just taken its way. So what, you, what drew you to this movie? Uh, what what'd you like about Polly? Uh, I actually liked the script. I thought it was great, uh, an interesting, uh, interesting story. I like stories. When, when I do a film, it's more about, oh, who's in it? 
oh, I'm going to have fun playing with these dudes. You know, I mean, I've been fortunate. My first film was Natural Born Killers. I moved to Hollywood, got to Hollywood one day. I met Oliver Stone, and I was an idol of mine growing up. And I'm, like, in a room with Oliver Stone my first day in Hollywood. I was like, oh, my God, there's an idol of mine. And I'm staring at him, and he looks at me. He saw my independent film I did. He goes, I'm going to put you in my next movie. And I'm like, are you kidding? I had no union card, nothing. My first week in Hollywood. I drove from the Bronx to Sundance. Sundance, the movie was a hit. I drove from Sundance to L.A. I met Oliver with somebody. I drove him to a meeting. I'm sitting with this my idol. Like, how, how weird does that get? And you're like, oh, my God, this guy's, like, been an idol of mine for my whole life, like a filmmaker. Like, I'm not a big Scorsese guy or, you know, I'm more of an Oliver Stone guy. I'm My first day, I'm with him. Looks at me, he goes, I'm going to put you in my next movie. I love your look. I was, like, you know, 25 years old. I was like, wow, Really? I leave, Natural Born Killers. Next week, next couple months, I'm with Robert Downey, Woody Harrelson, Tommy Lee Jones, Juliette Lewis, shooting this massive movie in Chicago with a guy that I wanted to be like. So it became my film school and stuff. You know, I was like, wow, I'm learning from the guy that I idolized my whole life. So, again, you don't know, you know, like, who's going to be in projects. I like to know who I'm working with. What actors? Are you going to have fun? You know? And this, this cast, my buddy's the producer, Anthony, so... When he cast me in the film, it was kind of a funny way I got cast because I went in for the audition and I cursed up a storm. And I get a call. The I can't believe that. It's hard to believe. <laughs> you see me at the other Q&As. I'm calm. So it's kind of like, so, so when Anthony called me, you know, I went in, I met the director, and the guy calls my house. To, to Anthony's like, hey, man, you did good, but you kind of cursed too much. The guy's kind of like, you know, wants to speak to you. I said, what, is it? what the fuck do you want? <laughs> and he's like, that's it. That's what we need. I said, all right, tell him to call me. The guy, the director calls me, Mark. He goes, uh, Louie, I love you, blah, blah, blah. You know, you just don't. I go, man, just whatever. I talk to him for an hour on the phone. I, I wake up at 1 in the afternoon every day. I don't go to bed till 6 a.m. I read. I don't really watch television. I don't really drink. I don't go out. You know, all I do is read. So I'm, I wake up at 2 in the afternoon. People are like, look at this guy waking up at 2. But you don't go to bed till 6, you know? So he calls me. He wakes me up. He's like, you just waking up? This guy must have been like, what am I hiring? This vulgar cursing guy who's waking up at 2 in the afternoon? Talk to him for an hour. He goes, don't even come back in. You got the role. And it, here we are, you know. And it turned out to be one of the best roles I've ever had. Like, you know, in my eyes, working with that group of actors was great. Thank you. So, Keith, anybody who's caught up with the podcast knows this. And everybody, of course, is caught up with the podcast, right? But just in case somebody isn't, what did you tell Rachel Taylor who played Molly in the movie, that made her choke up. Oh, that yeah, that's a good story. Um, I remember uh, Harry telling me about... The, the story always got, came to life to me when Harry talked about escaping to Brookville and meeting a woman named Marlene Brady. That was her real name. And so when I went, I went out to Rachel Taylor's house... Uh, to interview her for the podcast, and she didn't know the backstory between Harry and Marlene. I had interviewed Marlene in 2002, uh, just before she died. And then I interviewed her niece, and her niece told me that when uh, she was dying, pancreatic cancer, she uh, reached out to her niece and said uh, that her best boyfriend ever was Harry Barber. She, she'd had a difficult series of guys after, after he was arrested. And uh, Harry called her on the phone, I believe it was the night before she died, and 
asked if he could put uh, roses in her casket, and so she was buried with roses from Harry Barber. And when I told that to Rachel Taylor, she teared up during the interview. And that, to me, that's why this movie is great. It's the little moments between the brothers. It's the moments between the detectives and the moments between Harry and Molly in the film. Louis, does it help to know all the, those kinds of details when you're playing somebody, especially you know, if it's something based on a true story? Or is it easier just to kind of go in clean and not have anything in your mind that would kind of ground you to reality? Well, sometimes it depends. If it's a story like this, which is true, sometimes you want to know stuff that's happened so you can make it better or stronger. But most movies, like I said, <clears throat> I kind of go in and I do me, you know, like as an actor, like with the team, but I kind of believe what you create, like I said, as an actor, is what you create your own brand. So, you know, it's it's kind of like I don't I don't really go too much into – about, you know what happened if it's just a regular story remember like what's the character what do he do for a living i don't really care you bring your strength to the table and most times it works out i'm very lucky where you know i've never went to acting school i never went to film school i've written directed and starred in three films you know i've been in 70 films i've been in 10 series i won an emmy for 24 you know so it's like edgar long live edgar but, <laughs> thanks but you know I believe in, like, you just get out there. You know, I went. I actually went to fifth grade, you know, and I've written 30 scripts. I've learned how to read and write, you know, when I was a kid. And that's why people put too much pressure on their kids to do stuff, and kids don't do it at a, res at a resistance of what you make them do. You know, that's why with my daughter, I'm like, you do what you got to do. If you feel you don't want to do something, you're going to force someone. And I didn't do that. I didn't go to school. I didn't do film school or acting school. And fortunately, my determination and, again, what I see in my mind never stopped me. And look where I am now. You know, and one of my career highlights was being on the, you know, I did, tw I did Sopranos for a long time. And then I did 24 right after. So the, the year we were at the Emmys, uh, the year we won, because we were nominated for several years, the year we won, I was uh, on 24, and we were up against Sopranos. And in the front row, there was Gandolfini and the whole cast. And we were like five rows behind because we were like, you know, and a little deeper. And they thought we, they were going to win Sopranos. So they were in the front row. And they said 24. And we got up there. And it was like the career highlight of my life was watching all the Soprano dudes going crazy for me. Because I was just on their show, you know, the year, a couple of years before. And they were so happy. Gandolfini, who I knew way before Sopranos, was jumping up and down. I was like sitting there with the Emmy in my hand going, wow, this is like surreal. You know, two shows I'm on, both of them an Emmy. And, and again, it wasn't like I tried, like, you know, they just cast me in both shows and it worked out, you know. So you just, again, you never know. You put your heart into whatever you do. You open a business, you make a movie, it's all the same. Put your 100%. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, you don't get down. That should motivate you and learn and get stronger and do better. And you will learn from your mistakes and get stronger on the next stuff. And that's me. I tell my daughter all the time, oh, yeah, I didn't get that audition. Watch the fucking next one. She's like, she stares at me. and I'm like, you watch. And boom, before you know it, I'm in more movies. You know, and I try to teach her that. You don't get down. You don't get depressed. You don't get sad. You don't get miserable. You get stronger. Rejection makes you stronger. And anybody who don't believe that, you guys have no clue. And you want, the funny part is, is. Most of the people I grew up with are doing 25 years in prison. Seriously. And that's the reality of the life where I came from. 
And they all watch me. Like, I get calls from all the prisons and letters going, you know, oh, my God, we're watching you in the prison room. We're watching you here. That's hysterical. You're the cop. Ha, ha, ha. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I'm the FBI, you know? But, again, you know, that could have been my pet. So I kind of wake up every day with a different perspective. You know, I wake up happy and blessed. And whether you got money or whether you don't have money, life is still good. That's great. Um, one thing I really enjoyed about the movie was its love of the movies. And that's something that we kind of carried through in uh, the podcast so far. Um, and so it's kind of a reminder. We did take a survey, and anybody who hasn't uh, filled out a ballot yet, uh, we have been counting down our top bank heist movies uh, throughout the podcast, and we want to have the audiences uh, vote for uh, top heist movies. We kind of expanded it even beyond uh, just the bank heist movies. So if you haven't had a chance to do that, there are some ballots. Uh, Caroline Wong in the back has those, and feel free to fill one out, and we're also going to um, have a, a drawing that will give something away in just a little bit. Um, on that note, we... Keith and I debated a lot about the top bank heist movies, and it was a matter of us determining not just what were our favorites, but really what were the best. And my favorite is Out of Sight for many reasons. I just love the movie. I think it's maybe Soderbergh's best movie. Um, But we both agreed on the number one, um, Out of Sight finished number two. Keith, what is it about our number one choice that made it clearly the best bank heist movie? The screenplay. Uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is something that I just will put on and watch the opening five minutes of that movie. Uh, I could see Redford and Newman uh, reading or acting with a William Goldman script. You know, uh, that's that's the top of movie making to me. Do you have any heist favorite? It would be uh, what was the one with De Niro? Heat? Heat. Yeah, that's Heat good. was great. If you watch that film, I mean, I, like I said, I go to the movies three nights a week. I have no life. <laughs> and I really do. I go to the AMC three nights a week, and I'm just a movie guy, and I think Heat was definitely one of the best. It's you, on the list. Right? Yeah. You watch that, it's like watching a documentary when you get to that shootout, and it goes on for 20 minutes, and you're still like, wow, you know? Yeah. But Butch Cassidy, I mean, that's the best. He may be a little older than me. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that's that's, that's true. That's You've true. been too nice to me, so. <laughs> Louie, I heard that you had something, some comments about Keith's jacket, by the way. I said he looked like Pimp Daddy. <laughs> I go, man, Thank where's you. your stick? <laughs> where's my stick? Cane. That's how old I am. I call it a stick. Yeah, I need a cane, yes. Nice. We are going to open up for uh, some audience questions in just a moment, but I had one more for Harry that I'm hoping that he'll answer for us. Harry, what did the movie get the most right, and what did it, was it just absolutely wrong about? Uh, we were in there three days. What, wait, what did you say? I didn't hear you. We were in the bank three nights. Yeah, so that's right. That's, that's right. right, yeah. And it was a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> we were, thought we were a lot smarter than what we were, but... This is the way life goes. So what did they get wrong? Oh, I loved it. Uh, you know, it, it's... Did, hey, Harry, did you, um, did you leave the dishes in the dishwasher? That's a lie. 
Oh, so there was no dishwasher thing? There was a dishwasher, but I had a cleaning crew come in and clean the whole place. I stood outside, and I knew what happened. But this was a movie. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, Eric. All right. uh, Who has a question? Please raise your hand. I'll bring the mic over. And I think it's mainly, hopefully, uh, Louie and Keith, unless we can convince Harry of a couple others. I'll walk back here. Just a sec. So, Keith, with all the different permutations of the script, was did you have a favorite scene that just never made it to this final um, film? And if so, can you describe the great scene that we're, that we're missing? So the, the part that I was disappointed about uh, that isn't there is that Molly Murphy, the Rachel Taylor character in real life, had a twin sister. Uh, it was Marlene... Brady and Darlene and Darlene was a cop and so it it was uh, not her father who was the cop it was the twin sister and I always thought that was a great detail Um, but the filmmaker wanted to go a different direction so all right um, we are being warned that we just have a few minutes so how about another question let's see right here Hey, Keith, what, yeah. I remember a 19-year-old kid in college who found out a, um, oh. a counterfeiting scheme, stumbled onto a counterfeiting scheme, and I think we have to give a little shout-out to our boy uh, Wayne Wurzer right now. Oh, that's right. A f- yeah. friend of mine. So you and Wayne Wurzer stumbled onto a counterfeiting scheme as 19-year-old uh, reporters in junior college, and then you go on to your next script, and then 17 years later, there's a theme here. You seem to like a certain kind of brand. And why is that, and what, what do we look forward to next? Because I don't know if I can wait 17 years. <laughs> um, my mom raised me on uh, Agatha Christie, and uh, I, I was always a you know, crime guy. And even, uh, you know, I, I write general assignment features for the register, but the ones that I like the best are cops and robbers. So I always have since I was 19. Oh, Dylan. Oh, boy. Here we go. Here we go. So this one's for Louie. Um, how stoned was Travis during the filming of this? <laughs> Where did you get that? The entire film. Oh. <laughs> no, I mean, he's, he, he's a... You, you know, one thing I like about this crime film is it's a comedic tale. It's almost fantasy-like with a true story. And I think he played it great. I think Travis did a great job. He kind of made it a lovable, likable guy instead of a hard guy where most bank robbers are. Everybody wants to be a tough guy. Travis went to the set every day. He was the nicest person. He was probably the nicest actor I've ever worked with. And I've worked with every single person. He was definitely one of the nicest people. This whole cast was great. But as a movie star, which Travis is on his way to be, he had no ego. He didn't mind making himself look silly or kind of being stupid in certain things. And, you know, he really didn't. Like, even when he was playing some of these things and his looks and his things, and most leading men wouldn't do that. They want to be the cool, good-looking dude. And he kind of gave himself, you know, more of a laughing kind of vibe, which I thought was great. So if he came across stone, maybe he was, you know. <laughs> good for him. <laughs> All right. Any one last question? All right, we're up here. 
Where did the Inside Man rank on your list of heist flicks? The Inside Man, I believe, was fourth on the list. That's so pretty good. I'm, I'm a big fan of Spike Lee. And I think uh, we noted in the podcast that that was really one of the the best heist plans. Right, um, right. Like, like this one. Uh, so we love that part of it. All right. We need to wrap up, so I want to do some thank yous. Um, we actually, because people are still turning in their ballots, we will contact the winner by email. Thank you very much for giving your opinions on that and for showing up tonight. Um, to the people who run the Frida, uh, Logan Crow and everybody yeah. on the staff, thank you so thanks much. Thanks for making this such a great night. Um, to our uh, Southern California News Group leadership and marketing team, uh, my boss, Frank Pine, his boss, Ron Hasse, and then you know, everybody who is supportive of this, um, both in kind of freeing Keith up, also supporting the podcast. Please listen to the podcast. Subscribe. Tell your friends about it. Tell your friends all over the world because we'd love for this thing to just keep blowing up. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you, Louie. Um, yeah, a lot of fun and great job in the movie. Thank you again to Harry Barber. Um, really love having you here tonight. And to Keith Sharon for, hey, taking us on a great ride with you. Congratulations, and yeah, let's see another one soon. Thank you all. Okay, here we go. Drum roll, please. We polled the opening night audience for Finding Steve McQueen and took in some social media responses. The fans of the movie and the Crime Beat podcast have eclectic tastes. Here we go. Your selections for the top ten heist movies of all time. Number ten is Hell or High Water, the little-known bank robbery movie written by Taylor Sheridan. He also wrote Sicario and Wind River. In the small world department, Heller Highwater opened in the little town of Olney, Texas, population 3,102, where Todd Harmonson's late father was born and grew up. Number nine is Heat, which you just heard Louis Lombardi mention as his favorite heist movie of all time. Number eight is Reservoir Dogs, which stands alone on this list because the audience never seized any kind of heist in the movie. And, well, there's the whole cutting off the ear thing. And then there's a five-way tie for third place. We'll go alphabetically. First up is A Fish Called Wanda. It's the personal choice of Logan Crowe, who owns the Frida Cinema. It's got a great performance by Oscar winner Kevin Klein in a supporting role. And it's the only comedy on the list. Baby Driver is next. And that fares even better with the audience than it did on our list. We had it at number five of the all-time bank heist movies. Here's a hint about what's to come. Baby Driver is not the only Kevin Spacey movie on this list. Inception is also part of our third place tie. It's less about a heist and more about special effects. What's being stolen in this movie are dreams. It's a wild ride. We actually thought The Sting might take the top spot on the list... But it's here in this part of the pack. Paul Newman and Robert Redford mastered the buddy comedy. They're the most likable pair of thieves ever. And you'll hear from them again. And rounding out our list of movies in a third place tie is The Usual Suspects. It's the other Kevin Spacey movie on the list. 
It was a heist and something far more sinister. It introduced us to Kaiser Sose and fooled us as much as it did the criminals. Second place on your list was a bit of a surprise to me, but perhaps it shouldn't have been because of the all-star cast. The Italian job was a popcorn flick. It paired Mark Wahlberg and Charlize Theron and surrounded them with Jason Statham, Ed Norton, and Most Def. They went racing through L.A. in Mini Coopers. That brings us to number one, which should have been obvious. It was our number one, too. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was your clear favorite, and why not? As I mentioned in the Q&A, the screenplay is a masterpiece. This is where we first learned that Newman and Redford could share the screen. It's hard to imagine any two superstars doing it better. By the way, we at Crime Beat appreciate that it was a bank heist movie that came out on top. Are you ready for the winner of our drawing? It's Pam McCoy. Her favorite heist movie was A Fish Called Wanda. Pam's prize, of course, a gift certificate to the movies. Thanks so much for listening to Crime Beat. I have loved every minute of the research and storytelling involved in putting together a podcast. If I ever find more interesting avenues about this bank heist to pursue, I'll drop in a special episode to keep you updated. In the meantime, I'm already working on season two. It'll be a new crime in long-form narrative structure. I hope to be back soon. The best way you can support this podcast is to give us high ratings and reviews and tell your friends to check out our work. Thanks for listening. Crime Beat Season 1 was produced by the Southern California News Group. The executive editor was Frank Pine. The senior editor was Todd Harmonson. Production and original music by Michael Crow. Sound editing by Jeff Gritchen. Graphics by Kurt Snibby. And I want to give special thanks to podcasters who inspired this work. Amy Wilson and Amber Hunt on Accused. Sarah Koenig on Serial. Brian Reed on S-Town. Chris Gofford on Dirty John. Madeline Barron on In the Dark, Nate DeMeo on The Memory Palace, and Phoebe Judge on Criminal. <laughs>